Hello, lab rats. Welcome to Crime Keeper, the place where fish heads are food and Igor is rude. Which is one way to introduce myself. I am Igor. I just got off the phone with Queen V, and I've been tasked with planning her birthday in the lab. It's coming up next month. So, uh, I guess it's kind of a promotion, but uh, I don't know. A lot of work. She's high maintenance, you know. Oh well. We are back again, starting with the news flash. This is not local, but you may have heard this around. The horn, as the kids say. I got this from NBC4i. And this is about that UK woman that boiled the water with sugar to kill her husband. Now, this happened actually last year. I believe she just got sentenced, but it was July of 2020 that she did this. So Karina Smith, who's 59, was livid over a rumor that her hubby, 81-year-old Michael Baines, and apparently Smith's daughter told her that Baines had molested children, including her and her son. And her son took his own life in 2007. The next day, Smith placed the boiling water in a garden bucket, mixed it with three bags of sugar. She then poured the mixture over him as he slept, scalding his arms and torso, then goes over to the neighbors to advise, I've hurt him really bad. I think I've killed him. Baines ended up having 36% of his body burnt and he died a month later. Smith was sentenced to a minimum of 12 years in prison. And looking into it more, evidently the sugar makes the water thicker, sticky, and sinks into the skin. Ugh. Also, the neighbor was nine houses away. Guess she wasn't close to her close neighbors. Not that he deserves this either way, but I looked into the allegations against him by the daughter, and BBC News only mentions a family dispute. So I digged further... Dug further? Digged? Bigfoots? Um, I found from Liverpool Echo that the article says the daughter was also abused by Baines as a child. So initially in the first one, it didn't say, from NBC4, it didn't say that she told her that she was also abused by him, the daughter. So this goes on to say that she says she was also abused by Baines as a child, and she revealed this to her mom on a trip to Liverpool over a glass of wine. Now that's a hell of a way. The judge said, you and your other family members could not understand why Craig's life had taken this course. Had he told you the man he attacked had been a pedophile and that he had touched him sexually. What the judge is referring to is that her son had a very troubled life and he had been in jail and he had been in jail by due to attacking a man and Going back to what the judge is saying, the day before Craig's death, he had been in some distress and had said, Mom, he's a pedophile. You understood him to be referring to the man he had assaulted. Craig seemed happier the next day and you did not explore what he said any further. This is something that you have felt guilty about ever since. The background to the offense does not provide mitigation. It was accepted at trial that you believed what you were told by your daughter, that your husband had abused her and your deceased son. You connected his death to the abuse that was alleged. These revelations were truly shocking for you, and they lie behind what happened. There was clear evidence of your distress before and after you attacked your husband. He was saying he, he understood. Obviously, it, you still did it. I couldn't find any articles that the allegations were found true, but it sounds like they have some legs, unfortunately. It looks like it's still being investigated, really, with two of the main people dead. It's... 
you know, it's just horrible. I, but I do have a little bit, I guess you would say good news. I uh, was listening to the Murder Squad a few days ago, and they said there was an update on Rebecca Gould's killer. So I went to her Facebook page, and the trial has been moved to 2022, and the defense may seek fitness to proceed motion. I'm guessing that has to do with his mental capability. They mentioned a lot about his mental illness and things like that, so we'll see how that transpires. Um, just to remind you, Rebecca was murdered September of 2004. We're going to move on to OMG. Now, this does find, fall into the crime category, although it is a little bit celebrity stuff. But, you know, criminals are criminals, so whatever. So if you guys know about Drake and Josh from Nickelodeon, the Drake and Josh actor was sentenced I used to watch the show with a young family member, and I think I even took that person to see him um, at a Disney concert way back, way back. And um, I knew Drake Bell had been having issues since the show went off the air, and he had aged out of Nickelodeon and Disney. But this is very unexpected. According to People magazine, Drake was sentenced in Cleveland, here in Ohio, to endangering children and disseminating matter harmful to juveniles. He got two years probation after pleading guilty to involvement with a minor. Uh, yeah, he was 30. She was 15. He started the relationship with her when she was 12 and then began abusing her when she was 15. Gross. I was reading other places. Now he goes by Drake Champana or Campana or something, so whatever. The victim wrote this statement and said, I chose to write this statement because I want justice to be served more than anything. The only time that he def the defendant has appeared in court in person was on June 3rd for his arraignment, which was before the media found out about the case. He has appeared in court today over Zoom instead of appearing in person. This doesn't surprise me and shows what a coward he is, but I am not a coward. And she goes on to say that since this happened, she struggled with panic attacks and nightmares. Oh my God, I imagine. And has spent over seven grand in therapy. A few days later, Drake Bell takes to Twitter to say he's been married for three years. Total revelation. Never mentioned it before. And that they have a son. Now, less than a year ago, he was accused by his ex of assault, which he, of course, denied. He's a turd and a walking pus person. All right, main event. I did things a little differently. I've kind of broken it down into years. So we'll go chronologically. We'll start in the 1870s with Christina Edmonds, AKA the chocolate cream poisoner. So let's set the scene. According to Women's History Network, and I'm reading this, the Victorians were terrified of women poisoners. In fact, the fear of the female was a social construction brought into being by contemporary understandings of gender roles, particularly cultures of domesticity and a deep-rooted suspicion of the so-called female nature. The wide availability of a range of poisons also fed the Victorian imagination. While legislation attempted to curtail the sale of poisons in 1851 and again in 1868, they did little to affect a woman's access to poison, as shown most famously in the case of Christina Edmonds the chocolate cream killer, who terrorized Britain over the summer of 1871 by poisoning confectionery and dispersing it around the town. In reality, there were only 254 women accused of murder or attempted murder in the period 1750 to 1914. 
that's less than two every year. So we got that scene. And of course, going back to our the Black Widows of Liverpool, that whole, you know, poisoning syndicate. So that was this kind of era too. So now that we know where we are, let's go to Murderpedia and find out more about her. Christina Edmonds was born in 1828. I think it's Christiana. Listen, I'm gonna call her whatever. She was born in 1828 in Margate, England. Her father was an architect, but by the 1860s, he had passed away, and she was living with her mother and began an affair with a married Dr. James Beard when she was 42. Why not? You know, when the doctor tried to end it in 1870, she freaked and gave him chocolates for his wife at his home, and he let her eat them. Wifey got sick but recovered, and despite suspecting poison, the dopey doc did nothing that would bring the affair to light. So he was like, if I say anything, people are going to know, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. All right, okay, so remember that. 1871, Edmonds was getting chocolate creams, injecting them with strychnine, then returning them to the store. That kind of reminds me of the Tylenol murders. How did she get the strychnine? She got it from a dentist saying she needed it for stray cats. The band. Not really. The dentist eventually tells her it was cruel. We don't know after how long of letting her do this. She began to obtain the poison through a friend. Due to her volume of chocolate buying, people started to wonder what was up. So she started paying boys to buy them for her. Hey, little guy, what you doing? I'll give you a Hot Wheel car if you buy me some chocolates. Peeps was getting ill from the sweets, but no one made the connection yet until June of 1871. Little four-year-old Sidney Barker had died eating the chocolate and later was ruled the only death related to her poisonings. So she stopped, right? <laughs> Does a lizard like pancakes? She upped the ante and started having them delivered to well-known townspeople, including Mrs. Beard. Guess the hubs didn't see that happening twice to stop her. The outcome was the same. She got severely sick. The popo had connected the chocolates by now to the poisonings. And despite Edmonds even sending to herself the toxic treats, was linked to the events by her old lover, Dr. Beard. Edmonds was charged with attempted murder of the ex's wifey, as well as the death of little boy Barker. She spent the rest of her life in Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum, dying there in 1907. Wow. Them poisoners. I don't know what it is, but I just, I was listening to a podcast for a while, years and years ago. It was an old-timey kind of one, and he did a lot of stories, and it all seemed to be poisoning, though. So, you know, I try to get things uh, mixed up here in the lab for you. The next one we're going to talk about is 1932, The Unsolved Murder of Mamie Thurman. This is from AppalachianHistory.net. Mamie was a housewife in Logan, West Virginia, living with her husband, Jack, and he was a city patrolman. She was said to be having an affair with her landlord, Harry Robertson, and about a baker's dozen other dudes. June 22nd, Mamie's body was found dumped on a mountain. She had been viciously butchered, shot in the head twice, neck fractured, face disfigured, and powder burned, throat cut from ear to ear. Later that night, the landlord lover and his handyman were arrested for the crime. Robertson admitted to the relationship and further advised how his handyman, Stevenson, would assist in arranging the tryst. July. The trial starts with many friends of the landlord, Robertson, being in the jury and hearing him tell of his supposed list of loves that Mamie had given them. 
like 16 in all. Dude kept on seeing her, and according to him, he did just that on the day of her death prior to leaving to take his kids to the pool, which kind of makes me seem like he had to go poop. But anyway, the jury comes back with no charge against the white guy, only against the handyman, who is not. So Stevenson alone stands trial for the murder. Witnesses at the trial accounted for every minute of Clarence Stevens's time up until 11 o'clock on June 22nd when he was seen going to bed. However, the jury was out only 50 minutes before returning with a guilty verdict. But they did recommend mercy because people liked him. It carried a life sentence. Stevens's attorney immediately entered a motion for a new trial. There was a huge fundraiser to start was started to aid the cost of the appeal, but the appeal ended up being denied. So I still hope they gave his counsel that money. Poor Stevenson was sent to Moundsville Prison August 22nd of 34. In 1939, he was transferred to Huttonsville Prison Farm, where he died of stomatic carcinoma, stomach cancer. April 24th, 1942. He was buried on the prison farm May 2nd of 42, almost 10 years after the death of Mamie Thurman. Norman Sloan, a Logan County resident who spent time in jail and prison with Stevenson, said, He told me he was hired to take the body to 22 Mountain and that he didn't do anything to Mamie Thurman. He never did say who killed her, but he said that he didn't do it. Stevenson told me it was all politics, which I tend to believe and agree with. Ugh, some things don't change. I also found from New York Daily News that I stumbled upon <laughs> with what caught my eye, this title. Sexed, crazed West Virginia woman, brutally murdered in 1932, may still haunt Appalachia back roads. I was thinking, okay, well, this has to be like back in the 30s, right? Or the 40s or something. No, it was written uh, 2017 by Mara Bobson. Really, Mara? Sex crazed? What about the bloke she was banging? We don't say anything about that? 2017? Mm. This goes on to say that Mamie was 32 Stevenson was only 29 and Robertson was 40, and that doubts still linger over Stevenson's guilt. Mentioned suspects, all the wives of all the guys she was with, her hubby, they say the KKK because there are rumors that she was okay with seeing black dudes, which, whatever. But back then, of course. Also, bootleggers were mentioned, cocaine dealers, and you get the picture. There was a... <laughs> This is a quote from uh, a Logan man rhapsodizing about her beauty. And he said, <laughs> She was a flashy woman who favored form-hugging dresses, bright red lipstick, and lots of makeup. That Mamie sure was a high stepper. That was uh, from D.W. Hinchman, 92 years young, in 2002. It also goes on to say that Mamie and Robertson had a two-year affair before his wife figured things out, only about a month prior to the slang. Blood was found in his car in the basement that led to his and Stevenson's arrest. Also mentions that witnesses saw Stevenson driving around the area where Mamie's body was found. And the reason they are pretty sure it was him, Stevenson had been in a car accident that caused him facial abnormalities, along with him being less than five feet tall. I could totally take him, but I wouldn't because he seems nice, unless he did something with the body. Anywho, it also left him prone to nosebleeds, which is what he said the bloody rags found in the car in the basement were. And there continue to be ghost sightings, glimpses of the woman in blue, hitchhiking, lurking in abandoned cabins, or meandering along the roads near the place where Mamie's body was found. 
So they didn't really go into a ghost story, but whatever. They kind of mentioned it. So that's good enough for me. Appalachia. Now, it's your favorite time and mine. Dad jokes time. And this first one is in the honor of Christina Edmonds. Most serial killers are men. That's because women like to kill one man slowly over many, many years. Yeah. You know, kind of by poisoning them with just being a woman is what that's alluding to. Did you hear about the killer who was coming out of retirement? He's taken another stab at it. Women say their number one fear of online dating is a guy will be a serial killer, which is totally true. Men say their number one fear is that the woman will be fat. So that's kind of a statement of fact and not really a joke, because I've heard dudes say that. So we are moving right along, and we are going to talk about the person who is the theme of our episode today, The Exorcist Killer. Now, this happened in the 1970s when The Exorcist movie was popular. I heard about this a while ago, and I thought of a whole theme of like cursed movies that we could talk about that I thought that'd be interesting. So I watched something on Shudder, maybe, or Netflix, and Queen V, I think, told me about it. But it wasn't the tie-in necessarily that I was looking for. There wasn't enough of the curse aspect that I felt was real. But this was mentioned in it, being one of the factors of the feeling like Exorcist is cursed. Don't know if you've heard about him, but his name is Paul Bateson. And this is starting an article in Esquire that came out in 2018. So 1972, which was the year I was hatched, one William Freakin' Freakin', Freaking Friedkin, watched an angiogram procedure at the New York Center Radiology Lab and decided, due to the spray of the arterial blood during it, it had to be in his movie. And he wanted all the same participant of participants involved in the procedure, including the tech, Paul Bateson. September 14th of 77, the body of Addison Verrill was found. He was a film reporter for Variety and lived in Greenwich Village, the same Greenwich Village that had a lot of deaths of gay men at the time. That new one was reporting, except one Arthur Bell of the Village Voice. His story on Verrill caused a call he wasn't expecting on September 22nd. From Verrill's killer, the unknown person said he and Verrill met at a gay bar off Christopher Street called Badlands until 3 a.m., where they went to another bar until 5.30 a.m. That hurts my liver, just thinking about it. Eventually going back to Verrill's place. They did more drugs, had sex, and yet on to more of the drugs until about 7.30 a.m. The dude then says, and I quote from the paper, Something hit me. Addison hadn't been reciprocal. It wasn't just the sex act itself that wasn't reciprocal. It was the soul act, too. Kind of sound like Dahmer, wasn't it? I wanted a lasting thing. Something that would go beyond sex, into friendship, a lover, or marriage. I can't fathom exactly what I did. I concede that it was my alcoholism. There's a stigma placed on alcoholics. But I needed money, and I hated the rejection. It was the rejection that triggered things. Something flared up in my head. I decided to do something I've never done before. I took a heavy frying pan from the kitchen and knocked Addison out. Then I went into the drawer in the right-hand side of the kitchen, removed a knife, and stuck it in his chest. 
I plunged it too high. I should have stuck it a bit more toward the center, left. The killer caller also mentioned he wanted to give himself up, but he knew he'd lose his license and not be able to practice again. Oy. Bell alerted the popo, and they placed him in protective custody, hoping that the caller would call him once again. And when he did get a call, this time it was from someone claiming to know the killer's identity, Paul Bateson. So the authorities go to Bateson's home and try to take him to the station. But he's drunk and resisted, despite telling them he knew why they were there and pointed to Bell's article. After food, coffee, and cigarettes, Bateson admits to the murder, which is usually what takes me to kind of just wake up to the day. So the police tried to tie him to six murders of the men that I mentioned before had been murdered between 1975 and 1977. But the transcript isn't available to show what evidence they had or didn't have. But it was mentioned by the prosecutor during Bateson's sentencing the police did have evidence, although not direct proof connecting Bateson to the six torsos found in the garbage bags that were found floating in the Hudson River. The connection? The fact the torsos were cut and he had medical experience. Now, we've seen that happen before, a lot of times. Kind of flimsy, but, you know, given what he's done, understandable. Bateson claimed innocence, and he was sentenced to 20 years. Co-workers were shocked, describing him as professional, great with patients, and having no signs that would point to this behavior. Let's hope not at work. Damn. I mean, he only stabbed me twice, officer. I mean, we'd laughed about it later. Bateson was released in 2003. Isn't that weird? He got released. Matt Miller tried to track him down to no avail. He also tried to interview Friedkin, but he declined. Matt Miller, this author, got to listening to a podcast, and Friedkin goes on to talk about a, a visit, a prison visit that he had with Bateson. He found out that... He told him a lot of information that he wasn't, that he's never spoken about. And Bateson actually spoke with Bell again in 1977. This time, he told him why he was in the movie, why he wanted to do it. And he said, Bateson said, it was because it was kind of a rebellious act. He wasn't allowed to go to the movies. He was told to be more art-related, like violin or something, more musically inclined. And so he would make... They would make him stay home and do those types of things instead of letting him go to the movie. So he was that that was a big middle finger to his dad. I'm having a drink. Okay, we are on to our last tale for today. This is from 1996. Who killed Karina Homer? Now, I got this first bit of information from both Morbidology, which is not only a great website, but also a podcast. And don't get that confused with just the two sisters from Morbid, who I love. This also is from information I got from ChillingCrimes.com. 20-year-old Karina Homer lived in Sweden. She hit the lottery and decided to come to the States and be an au pair, which is like a nanny, but just not for a dresser nanny. I guess she, re- she did the scratch-offs and won like 1500 bucks. So in March... She decides to leave for Dover, Maryland, and begins working for Frank Rapp and his wife, Susan Nichter. Damn near killed her. Watching their two kids, a son six and the daughter, was a toddler. Karina's job was to watch the kids and clean the house during the week. 
while Susan worked out of her home doing like artist shit and was also a professor at a local college. I, I just don't know what else you can do at home when you're an artist, but then, you know, look where I work. Frank was a commercial photographer and worked in a loft in South Boston during the week, coming home on the weekends. Karina then stayed at the loft on the weekends, so they kind of swapped. On June 21st, Karina and her friends went to Club Zanzibar, which is a great name. Or even for a pet. This is little Club Zanzibar. Or it's just Zanzibar. And Club Zanzibar was a popular gathering place for au pairs and other Europeans. Since she was underage, her and her friends used a fake ID to gain entry. I'm assuming not the same one. And began joy, enjoying the summer solstice celebration. And the summer solstice is the biggest holiday in Sweden. Which reminded me of the movie Midsummer. Oh my god, that's a great movie. June 23rd. A homeless man was dumpster diving, opened a trash bag, exposing an arm. Police found only the upper half of the woman was in the garbage bag. Mutilated. She had been strangled as there were rope marks on her neck. Her body had been cut in a way only her spine was cut below her ribs and above the pelvis. I can't even imagine what that is, or I don't want to know. Investigators believed a saw was used, ugh, and then her body was cleaned. There were no signs of a struggle. A partial fingerprint was found on the bag. Frank and Susan then contacted the police, letting them know Karina never returned home. The U.S. State Department had to inform Karina's father, Ola, back in Sweden. Ola said she was a wonderful girl, a beautiful girl, and a very nice girl. There were many witnesses at the bar, many inebriated people that remember seeing her but gave conflicting statements due to, obviously, lack of a clear memory. Some said they saw her dancing with the homeless man outside. That sounds fun. Others claim she was talking to a man with a white dog who had on matching Superman top as his canine companion. Huh, interesting look. As for her friends, they all ended up leaving before her. But according to one of those friends, Karina had told her that she and an older man were going to an after-hours party. The man that had taken Karina to the nightclub on the night of her murder informed investigators that he was threatened by two men outside the club and he tried to take Karina home. He said that Karina was sitting inside a car with two men in the early morning hours. He leaned into the car and said, let's go, you came with us, referring to himself and the other group of friends. He told investigators that one of the men replied, get away from the car you little bitch or I'll crush your fucking head. Wow, that sounds like something my mom would say when she's... I'm kidding. She totally wouldn't. When talking to her friends, it came to light that Karina was planning on returning to Sweden in August, cutting her trip short. Now, it didn't say, like, how long her contract or whatever was, but obviously she just got there. In a letter to her friend back home, she stated something terrible had happened and would elaborate when she returned. So uh, that caused the police to want to speak with Frank. Uh, what happened, you know? Does he know what happened? Well, he said he didn't know or didn't want to divulge. Turns out, when they're investigating and checking out the, his home, the dumpster near his home caught fire the day after Karina's remains were found. So they took some ashes from the dumpster and sent to the Boston PD, but unfortunately nothing was found linking it to Karina. They were able to track down the Superman and his pup from surveillance footage, but found that he was pulled over for a traffic violation, 
so that made the time frame not fit. A year later, he would found dead from taking his own life. Karina was also dating a police officer, but he was away for the weekend. The rest of her body has never been found, and no matches were found to the fingerprints located on the trash bag. In December, it was revealed that Gregory Hummel was arrested after attacking a woman he picked up at the same nightclub where Karina had been. He took the woman back to his apartment where he punched her in the face and then sexually assaulted her. She managed to lock herself in his bathroom with his mobile phone to call police. An investigation uncovered that the attack on this unidentified woman wasn't the only time he had done something similar. He frequently picked up women outside nightclubs and attacked them. (laughs) Get a new hobby. What about crochet? You know? While it appeared as though this could have been the much-needed lead in the case, he would quickly be ruled out as a suspect. Her father, Ola, said that over the years, their grief has gradually subsided, and they like to focus on Karina as the daughter that he lost, as opposed to the grim circumstances surrounding her death. It still remains one of the state's biggest unsolved crimes. And I found in the Boston Herald an editorial, and I just wanted to read just a little bit of it. I just think it was a good way to end this little segment. With the passage of time comes shifting allegiances. People grow older and feel the need to finally shed the burden of guilt and knowing that their friend or family member did. Sometimes they simply wish to die with a clean conscience. For whatever reason, 25 years is a long time to keep a secret and a longer time for a family to go without justice. I had heard that story before, but I didn't remember how her body was found. Ugh, maybe I was just trying to forget. So going from that one into the Crime Keeper Beakers Up. In an honor of our recent interview with Glenn Stout, the author of Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, I decided to look up Miss Gertrude Ederly. He writ, wrote a book about Gertrude, and it has been optioned for a film starring Daisy Ridley. No word yet on if it's completely greenlit or whatever, but we'll keep you posted, of course, and you can also check it out online. When I was looking up to do the research, typed in her name, and it had this little autofill popped up. It said, how did Gertrude Ederly impact the 1920s? So I thought I would uh, bite and take a look. It says, in the early 1920s, as a competitive swimmer, she set women's world freestyle records and American freestyle records for various distances from 100 to 800 meters. In a single afternoon in 1922, she broke seven such records at Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. Wow. And there's more. Biography.com says that Gertrude Ederle, and that last name is spelled E-D-E-R-L-E, if you want to look her up, was a champion swimmer by her late teen years, and she competed in the 1924 Olympics. In 1926, she went on to become the first woman to swim the English Channel. Her record-breaking achievement brought her a period of fame and acclaim. In her private later life, she taught swimming at a school for deaf children, which I think is so sweet. Giving back. As a teen, Ederly left school to train as a competitive swimmer and joined the Women's Swimming Association. Competing locally, she had her first win at the age of 16, and between 1921 and 1925, she held 29 records. Wow. She arrived on shore at Kingsdown, 
England after 14 hours and 31 minutes, beating the record set by the previous male channel swimmers. I can't even imagine walking that long. For several years, America's queen of the waves, as she was called, was a sports star and a cultural sensation on par with Babe Ruth and Charles Lindbergh. That's huge. Her record remained unbroken until 1950. Why do we not know about her? I'll have to read that book now. Etterly died in Wyckoff, New Jersey in 2003 at the age of 98. The Gertrude Etterly Recreation Center, complete with a pool, bears her name on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, not far from where she grew up and first learned to swim. Wow, 98 years old. Makes me wonder, was it all the swimming that did it? Caused her to live so long? Because I walk like 3.8 miles several times during the week, but I um, eat a lot of Starburst. So I'm thinking that combination together is mostly like the 2021 equivalent of all that swimming. That's what I tell myself anyway. Well, you guys, we did it once again. And you know what it is. It's that time. Well, Lab Rats, Queen V, she's calling me into the lab with the fish head goodness. So I must depart. But remember, everyone has to find their truth. And mine is Abby Normal. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. Susan Nichter, damn near killed her.